When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the show, all roads lead to Nilfgaard. Welcome to Lore Party, the podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes behind some of our favorite video games. My name is Brett. And my name's Abu. And today, we explore all things Nilfgaard. That is right. We are going to the Empire of the Great Sun. We're going to dive deep into its origins. We're going to get to know everything we can about it, make some interesting connections to some real-world nations as well. And then we're going to talk about Geralt's neutrality, which I'm personally really excited about, because it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty weak philosophy. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, it's also very... I'm not going to say misunderstood because that implies that it's agreed upon, but it's not agreed upon by a lot of people that seem to think that, oh, it's all this complete neutrality, but is it? Right. And that's the big question that we're going to try to answer. But before we get there, of course, we got to talk about Nilfgaard. And the best place to start with Nilfgaard is the beginning at its origins, which is actually pretty muddy because there's not a lot of information on the origins of Nilfgaard, especially its ancient history, especially its foundings. Yeah, it seems to have started out a lot, even you can look at it as ancient Greece and whatnot, and ancient Rome, where it sorts out. It's a fledgling city-state that eventually grows in power and then seeks to dominate and show others that power. Right, it starts to take over a lot of the nearby provinces, a lot of the nearby city-states, presumably, but it starts off as a really small city-state of humans. And they start to intermingle with some nearby black elves and start to adopt a lot of their culture and a lot of their language. And that continues to even modern day Nilfgaard, where in the books at one point, Siri mentions how when she hears when she hears them speak in their language, she can almost understand it because she understands the elder speech, which is the language of the elves. Yeah, you have Emir's nickname, which I won't even begin to try to say <laughs> in the language. But yeah, in the books, it's the white flame dancing on the barrows of his enemies. In the games, it was white flame dancing on the graves of his foes. And so that right there lets you know that they still have this attachment to, again, it would be the elder blood through Emir and all that, especially with Siri. Right, for sure. And when you're a small city state, the only way you can expand, of course, is to have a really strong military. And that's a Nilfgaardian tradition that we see all the way to modern-day Nilfgaard. A strong military, a disciplined military, is a cornerstone of Nilfgaardian culture that continues on to this day. It's the military that helped them expand their borders all the way to the edge of the north. And it's something that the northern kingdoms will eventually have to face on multiple occasions. Yeah, it was one of those to do the LeBron with the heat thing and allowed them not one, not two, but three invasions of the Northern <laughs> Kingdoms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's going to be a lot of conflicts between the North and South, 
And all of that is going to be because of Emir, who is essentially the absolute monarch of Nilfgaard. We didn't mention this, but as far as government goes in Nilfgaard, it doesn't exist. <laughs> there's the monarch, he has absolute power, and um, you know, th there's a bit of a ceremonial senate of sorts, but it doesn't actually wield true power in the, in the nation of Nilfgaard. Yeah, and this is where you see the direct lineup with the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire, where you have the Roman Empire once you know, Caesar Augustus took over. They had a senate, but it was weak, and it could kind of try to do what it wanted to, but it didn't matter. The emperor had full authority. For sure. And I don't know if CD Projekt Red has openly said this yet. I haven't come across an interview myself. Um, I, I never came across an interview where anyone mentioned Nilfgaard being inspired by the Romans, but I think it's pretty clear that a lot of similarities exist between the two nations. Their origins are extremely similar. Their expansionist nature is extremely similar. Yeah, and it's definitely an absolute despotic empire. Like in there, one of the titles that the Nilfgaard empires uh, have is Imperator, which that's a direct title for a Roman emperor. And even going back to the Roman kingdom and the Roman republic, was Imperator meant essentially conqueror. So it was given to generals and all that. But once the empire came about, Imperator was strictly to the emperors. And the expansionist is also a huge thing on it. That when Nilfgaard took over, like the Romans, they allowed for the preservations of local cultures, languages, leaders, basically say, you can go about your business as usual, but you must swear fealty, and you absolutely must pay your tribute and taxes. Yes, please pay those taxes, and we will leave you alone for the yeah. most part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Nilf Nilfgaard essentially does exactly as the Romans did when they take over a new province. Instead of trying to convert their culture and risk some sort of uprising, all they do is inst install their own uh, governor or local king or local magistrate of some sort who watches over that province. But for the most part, that province gets to retain its culture and its history and its traditions as long as, just like you said, as long as they pay their taxes and as long as they swear fealty to the one true monarch, which in this case is Emir. And that's exactly what they try to do to the kingdoms of the north multiple times. But as we know, it doesn't work out. This spring, there was a massive battle in the marshes of Velen. Massive, yet indecisive. Both sides suffered enormous losses, unprecedented even. Radovid has retreated across the Pontar. He's safe for now, until reinforcements arrive from the south. Then... Emperor Emir Var Emrys will deal with him once and for all. So that led into the first war, the invasion of the Northern Kingdoms, that was highlighted with the slaughter of Sintra. It lasted four days, and Sintra was so afraid of the Nilfgaardian invaders that the women killed the children, the men killed the women, and then the men committed suicide. That's terrifying. That paints a really terrifying picture of the might of the, of the Nilfgaardian Empire and their military. It also paints a picture of what they think they'll do to them, especially when the queen, Calanthe, threw herself from a tower. So it's even where, I'm not going to surrender. Literally, there is a fate worse than death, so we will choose death. Right. That's sort of the impression that the Northerners have of the Nilfgaardians, that they're these beasts and these monsters and these ruthless people 
And if they invade us, we will be crushed under their boots. And uh, at least in the first war, they do as much banding together, I think, as the fragmented North can. And they at least repel Nilfgaard at Sodden Hill, thanks to the mages. Um, Amir decides, hey, I'm going to go for round two. And he starts the second war (laughs) and invades the North once again. And this time he's a bit more successful because he... um, because he worked with the Scoia'tael and the elves to start a coup amongst the mages, and he divided the mages, which was, as we know from the first war, the biggest reason that he lost the first time around. So this second time, he targeted them specifically, he divided them, he weakened them, and then invaded the north once again. And this time he was a bit more successful. Yeah, the mages had grown immense influence, mainly due to their help in winning the Second Battle of Sodden. And this is where the Thanid coup takes place. And this is where Emir shows his complete other political prowess and genius. As it was a meeting of sorcerers from Nilfgaard and the Northern Realms, and what happened is neither side really knew that the other was pretty much going to try to screw him. And so, long story short, these all get together. A sorcerer named Vilgefortz causes all this havoc, all this chaos, and that leads directly into conflict between the armies this also results in the Lodge of Sorceress being created, which played a massive part in The Witcher 3. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the Lodge of Sorceresses is this group of all-female sorceresses banding together and deciding that they are going to influence the politics of the world, not just the North, but the South as well, because there are a couple of Nilfgaardian sorceresses on the Lodge as well. And they band together and decide that they are going to do whatever it takes to influence the world to bend the politics of all nations to their will to achieve whatever goals they might have in mind. So that all takes place during the Second War, which, once again, ends with a massive force of the North coming together to repel a massive force from the South, from Nilfgaard. Yeah, this is where Northern Realms, led by John Natalis, and the Nilfgaard, who again, led by Field Marshal Menno Cohen, took place, he ends up getting killed. It brings the Second War to a close. But one thing I thought was interesting, a lot of themes here seem to come from comparing the Nilfgaard military to the Nazi military. And what happened was, is Nilfgaard removed and purged the military commanders from the First War and started what was called, and described in the World of the Witcher book, as Lightning War. And this is exactly what Hitler did before World War II. He swept out all the losing generals from World War I, put in all these new generals like Heinz Guderian, and created Blitzkrieg, which in German literally means lightning war. The key to Nilfgaard, and their most famous, was the Alba Armor Division. The pride of the German army were the Panzer Divisions, which literally means armored. But there was a description that Dandelion gave from the books, where he says, This war is unique. The armies of Nilfgaard leave behind them nothing but desolation and corpses, entire fields of corpses. It is a war of total extermination. Nilfgaard against everything. Now, you do have to kind of take that with a grain of salt, as Dandelion is clearly of the Northern Realms <laughs> and doesn't like Nilfgaard, so you can say he's biased And not the most it. accurate of narrators. <laughs> and he likes to tell, you know, he likes to spin a good yarn. So, yeah. But it does go to say that at least maybe that's something that's known or passed around amongst others is this army, if you're not Nilfgaard, if you're not Nilfgaardian, and they're coming, they're coming to exterminate you. It's not just beat you tip their hat and say, okay, 
go on. He's saying, no, they're coming to basically pull a Sintra on everybody. Right, right. Which again, plays into that fear mongering, if that's what you want to call it. But it, it really does play into that perception of what Nilfgaard is. They are these terrifying people, this terrifying nation to the south that is coming here to destroy us and eradicate us, not to just take us over, but to completely wipe us off the map. And that, again, is a reason for the northern kingdoms to band together and repel this second invasion. And the Nilfgaardians are forced to come to what is known as the Peace of Sintra, where they come to terms with the north. They give some, they take some. Part of what they take is they do end up actually absorbing Sintra into the empire, and it becomes an official province. But ultimately, Nilfgaard is defeated in the Second War. That leads into the Third War, which where you get with the Witcher 2. And that's where you have Demovin of Adirn and Foltest of Temeria assassinated. And if he didn't learn his lesson the first two times, Emir's still going to do that political plotting. And that's where he gets Letho. And he gets even the Lodge of Sorceresses. He kind of, you know, toys with them a little bit. They sow chaos in the north. The kings die. You get, you know, the assassins of kings. And then basically that leads us into where we're at the Witcher 3, which is a full-on invasion. And successful so far invasion of the north yeah at the end of witcher 2 we get that incredibly terrifying shot of the Nilfgaardian army the the, these rows and rows and battalions of soldiers crossing the yoruga river which was the border that was established at the end of the second Nilfgaardian war between the north and the south they are invading once again and that's really a huge part of the plot when it comes to the witcher 3 Depending on what side quests you participate in, you can have a huge effect on what takes place uh, between the North and the South and what the outcome of the Third War is. I remember that with, you know, you go to the, the Reasons of State optional quest. It's really Dijkstra and Roach. You know, you go to assassinate King Radovid V of Redania, who is, might be the biggest asshole in the series <laughs> of everybody. Like, I don't know how anybody can like him. Like, I don't know what redeeming qualities he can Not a have. single redeeming quality, yeah. I don't think there's one. So he was persecuting mages, non-humans. I mean, the pyres of Novigrad, you see they're burning Dopplers, magic. Everything is just bad, basically, unless you're a human. And so with the reasons of state is basically, if you do that, if you assassinate Radovid, I know the biggest choice is, do you choose Roach or do you choose Dijkstra? So who did you choose? So I had a thing against Dijkstra the entire game. So I think I ended up fighting Dijkstra. And I think if you if you choose to uh, deny him the throne, he attacks you, and I think you end up killing him, if I remember correctly. Yeah, you basically, Dijkstra's there, and he's like, yo, Roach, you gotta die. Because <laughs> I need to marry you again to just to be complete upheaval. Because Dijkstra was never really going to be like a king. He was just gonna take over as the best way to unite everybody against Nilfgaard. And I do believe if you chose Dijkstra, so if you kill Roach and you chose Dijkstra, then essentially Nilfgaard gets invaded. Dijkstra essentially becomes a de facto ruler. And they get, like, basically it's northern independence or northern self-rule. We interrupt this podcast for a preview for a different podcast. I'm Bruce, a regular contributor to Lore Party. In the unforgiving world of the gods, there is an endless, vicious cycle of fathers killing sons, brothers killing brothers, and sons killing mothers. But Kratos, the ghost of Sparta, looks to end that cycle with his son Atreus as they journey through the various realms of the Norse pantheon. 
Tune in to our God of War episodes where my co-host Abu and I discuss the latest installment in the God of War series from 2018 and the insightful ways the game creates more depth in a beloved franchise. Just check out our lore party feed and search God of War. It should be easy to find. We now continue your regularly scheduled podcast. So let's continue our discussion of Geralt. We were touching on some of his philosophies earlier, but the main thing we wanted to discuss, and a lot of this pertains to Nilfgaard, so we thought it would be interesting to discuss this on today's episode, is Geralt's philosophy of neutrality. And I know you're extremely opinionated on this, so uh, I'll let you give us sort of the 101 on what Geralt thinks his philosophy of staying completely neutral is. When he starts out in the books, it's very clear, like, neutral. Like, that's it. There is nothing to choose. And it's actually stated in that World of the Witcher book where the main Witcher explaining it in there is, we have to stay neutral because if we pick a side, we'll be remembered for picking that side. And should that side lose, well, we're done. Right. Like, it's the idea that as a Witcher, it's his job to completely remain politically neutral. And to never take a life or a kill because of some sort of ideology or because of just personal hatred or, or emotion. But we realize that Geralt is driven almost entirely by emotion and makes decisions based off of what he believes is right, based off of his own personal ideologies. And he's famous. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he's famous for saying lesser, greater. It's all the same. Like there is no lesser evil. And there is also no such thing as neutrality that eventually. If you're alive long enough, you will be forced to choose a side. That's interesting. So you think that Geralt's philosophy like simply cannot exist in The Witcher? Like You cannot be completely neutral in the way that Geralt thinks he is, or at least wants to be. You think that's not possible? I mean, if you're, if you're an individual as powerful as him, then no, because people will need you. If you're a peasant out in the country, yeah, because no one's really going to need you. But this is, you know... This is Geralt of Rivia. He's world famous. And like you mentioned before, he's involved with Yennefer, who's involved with everybody with yeah. their name. He then gets involved with Triss. And as we learn throughout the games, there she's with all you know the northern realms. She's there. Yennefer is instrumental with the Nilfgaardian Empire. So yeah, he's just simply too well-known and too mm, powerful. Gotcha, gotcha. So you're saying that Geralt is Spider-Man and with great power comes great responsibility to pick a fucking side. <laughs> As essentially, yeah, pretty much. That he's, whether, yeah, he can't. And the only way he can is if he goes to the ending of Blood and Wine expansion where he's on a wine, uh, he's in a vineyard in Toussaint and he just stays there. And as long as he stays there and no one knows he's there, so no one can come grab him and be like, hey, we got vampires attacking. Like, he's going to have to do it. He's simply too powerful. Yeah, I think I agree with you. You you make a strong argument for the fact that Geralt's philosophy on neutrality is just a total farce. Especially, like you said, we had talked about this before starting the recording. He's dating a sorceress. He goes to functions with other sorcerers and sorceresses who are some of the most politically active people in this world. <laughs> I mean, they're embedded, literally embedded as right-hand men or women of these kings of the northern realms. So I agree with you. I, I think because of his unique skill set, because of who he is and what he can do, Geralt really 
does not get to pretend he's neutral and doesn't get to decide that he wants to stay out of other people's conflicts. He has a moral obligation to get involved at that point. Exactly. Um, so now that we've established that Geralt is full of shit, that you can't be truly neutral in the world of The Witcher, and we've established the origins of Nilfgaard and how they came to be and the conflict between the North and the South, I wanted to ask you, how do you think the games and the books portrayed Nilfgaard differently? Or even portrayed Geralt's neutrality differently when it comes to how he interacts with Nilfgaard, who are ostensibly the bad guys, right? Like, they're dressed all in black, they constantly invade the North, they're attacking our people. How do you think the games and the books differ when they, when they show us this Nilfgaardian empire? I do think the games tend to show, especially specifically The Witcher 3, where it tended to show both sides are bad, or both sides aren't good. And so the games, I think, do tend to show it, and obviously they show Radovid as the only northern king, as just an unstable psychotic. Like, totally unhinged. Like, the yeah. dude has some severe issues. And I think that's what comes down to, you look at message boards, you look at everything, and it's like, oh, Nilfgaard or Northern Realms, Nilfgaard or Northern Realms. And it's like, well, both can be bad, but to me it's, Northern Realms is bad, but this Radovid is bad. Yeah, he's bad to the mages, he's racist as hell, he's killing non-humans, he's persecuting mages and anybody with magic. But he's kind of doing it to his own people, which, don't get me wrong, it's not good, as opposed to Nilfgaard, which is basically spreading this war across the entire continent. Again, both are bad. But I think it shows Nilfgaard as they're bad, but they're not. And I'm kind of trying to find a way to say it, but yeah, it, it is. It's showing like, no, this is an invading I mean, it's, force. It's complicated. It's nuanced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you see the destruction in Velen. You know, the Bloody Baron, they just let him take over because, hey, this guy can kind of keep the peace around there. But Velen is just, it's called No Man's Land. It's just war-torn. It's horrible. You see with all this destruction in Velen that this is what Nilfgaard brings. Yeah, I think the games did a pretty good job of walking that line, that nuanced, complicated line of not painting one side in particular as just these overtly evil characters. There were good guys on both sides. There were bad guys on both sides. And both sides led to a lot of pain and destruction. And it's really up to you as Geralt to navigate this like extremely complicated, dark world. And I think that's why stories like Game of Thrones and the Witcher series in particular are so appealing to me personally is because they walk that line between good and evil. Yeah, I think it does give, as you put a nuance, where it makes it personal. And I didn't read uh, any of the Tolkien books. I didn't read Lord of the Ring books, but you know, I watched the what? movies. What, Fred? No! No, 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 no. What I'm going to say is, what I'm going to say <laughs> is, all I'm going to say is, in those, and I can only speak of the movies, in the Lord of the Rings movies, it was very clear, good and evil. I mean, it was right there. Like, who really is like, oh, man, I'm going to support the orcs. Yeah. <laughs> I really want the orcs. I really want Sauron. Like, no, one, no one's going to do that unless you're... Hashtag you know, more the orcs like did that. nothing wrong. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Which maybe at the end, that's whole other thing. But that's what I mean. In that, it's, it's very black and white. Yeah. It's very, okay, this versus that. There's simply not much nuance in that. In this, like I said, you can go on message boards and you'll find people. No, Nilfgaard and Empire is great. The Northern Realms were this. Oh, no, no, the Nilfgaard was this. The Northern Realms were that. And you find so much of this, and I think that's just something that's truly, it might not be unique. I think it's unique in a story of a scale like this, where it is more personal. 
with Geralt, Siri, you know, Yen, those would be the big three. Right. Those are the characters that we spend the most time with and really yeah. the perspectives that we view the world through. Uh, and I think it's important to always remember that when you're consuming these stories is that you're experiencing the world through these characters' eyes, or at least through the way the author wants to portray them. And we're mostly spending our time, especially in the games, more so than in the books, we spend most of our time with Northerners, with people whose countries and nations and kings and families and friends are in danger because of this dangerous nation just to the south. So I think it's always important to remember that that probably colors your perception a little bit. Yeah, going back to that Dandelion quote is, we're going back to pretty much what they say about it. And we'll, again, Dandelion, he's the best friend of Geralt. We have no reason to dislike what he says. We can distrust it based on, you know, it's Dandelion. <laughs> but we have no reason to think that he's an outright liar in this case. Like if he was talking about, you know, a woman he got with or something like that, you can be like, oh, he's embellishing. But when he's talking about something such as the Nilfgaardian invasion, it's almost like, okay, Dandelion's kind of being serious here. So we kind of have to take it at face value for what he's saying. But with everybody, it goes back to he doesn't like the Nilfgaardians, so he's going to say that. If we were to get into the mind more of the Nilfgaardians, then we'd probably learn about how horrible these people were being treated and they were coming, you know, to liberate. Exactly. How barbaric these Northerners were and how they needed yeah. the Nilfgaardians to save them from themselves. You know, we'd be, we'd be fed that other narrative. Yep, law and order. <laughs> so to wrap up this episode, we've talked a lot about how the Nilfgaardians are portrayed, what Geralt's views on neutrality are, how the Northerners view the, the South, and how the South may potentially view the North, the small glimpses we get of that. But you brought up earlier that if you go online, you can find people defending Nilfgaard, you can find people defending the North, and people sort of draw a line in the sand and pick their sides. So I think it would be fun for us to pick our sides. Would you live in Nilfgaard? I would say no. But again, that doesn't mean I'm going to run up to Redania or run up to these other places and be like, oh no, those were good. I think a <laughs> lot of, you know, this is medieval fantasy, but a lot of it is traced back to actual medieval. And again, I'm bringing my bias into this of my degrees in history. A lot of it has to do with military studies is I've learned from history that expansionist, autocratic, you know, military countries are terrible and all they do is generally spread horror and pain to others. The only thing they're really good for is the ego of the invader. And whether that be Caesar, whether that be Napoleon or anybody else who's done it, I just would want no part of being represented by that. I would that makes not, a lot of sense. Yeah, I would not want to live in Nilfgaard. I wouldn't want to live anywhere. <laughs> like You can just spin a wheel and say, you're going to live, hell, put me, well, see, I would say Skellige because you're away, but no, they're a bunch of murderous pirates. But Maybe Kovir. Kovir is like a merchant nation and they're extremely wealthy. I hear it's not bad up there, but. You know what? Just send me to Zeracania. <laughs> yeah. Send me way the hell yeah, up there. Send me across the mountain. I don't want to deal Karathi with this shit. Desert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll cross the desert. Let's yeah. go to Zeracania. I'm sure Zeracania is dealing with its own shit. Um, but my answer to, th to this question, at least my initial answer, and throughout our discussion, I think you've actually swayed me. And I got to you. <laughs> yeah, I think you got to me, but I'll, I'll stick to my guns and I'll try to defend my original answer, which was obviously that I said, yes, I would live in Nilfgaard. And my original reasoning for that, before you started comparing Nilfgaard to Hitler, which makes me look like shit. <laughs> yeah, 
my original argument was essentially that the North is so fragmented. The North has multiple rulers. They're not a cohesive nation. And those constant conflicts and those constant changing borders in the North are something that you would have to deal with as, as an everyday peasant or as, as an everyday merchant or soldier or whoever in the North. If there's a war and the border changes, your fucking farm could get burned down just because Radovid over there decided he wanted to take over that side of the river, you know? That was my main argument there. It was the North is so fragmented, there's so much infighting, there's so much conflict, that you're never really escaping that. But um, I don't know. I feel like you ultimately changed my mind about that, and I don't want to live under Hitler in the Roman Empire and <laughs> support a nation that is cool with slavery. Well, that about wraps it up. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, maybe take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us grow the show. And be sure to connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.